Amen. It is, in fact, all about the name of Jesus. And sometimes you just want to hear that name. Jesus, Jesus, sweetest name I know. Uh, Good morning, Inglewood family. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Titus chapter 1. As you're turning there, I'll remind you, uh, if you weren't able to be here last week, uh, last week we started a series walking through the book of Titus, uh, looking at God's design and desire for the church, answering and asking the question, what makes the church a church? And more uh, personally, looking in the mirror to say, who are we as a church and what does God want to do with us? As we continue to progress through uh, the book of Titus this morning, we're going to talk about a, a, a subject really that as Paul kind of says, well, if this is who the church is, let's focus on and identify uh, what's necessary and essential for leadership in the church. And so we're going to walk through uh, what is called the, the qualifications for elders or pastors uh, this morning in chapter one. And this is going to be a little bit of a, a family conversation, uh, not only because of the season we're in, but quite honestly, it would be difficult for a pastor uh, to preach a text like this about himself. And so it's, it's an opportunity for me to share with you maybe what a pastor would otherwise not be able to say or speak into uh, as he would uh, speak to the office he himself holds. Now, uh, as you think about this, I want you to uh, kind of reflect on a story I heard one time about a group of medical students at an Ivy League school. They were studying to become doctors. And as they were, they were actually having to work the hardest in a class that they didn't feel like related to their field. Uh, These uh, med students were working through physics, and for them, they didn't see the connection between medicine and what they were responsible to do and physics. So they were lamenting this one day in front of one of their medical professors, and as they did, they were kind of of complaining and bemoaning uh, the fact that they had to work so hard at this particular course. And they, they said, why do we even have to take physics? It doesn't relate anything to our field. Well, the, the professor actually, as a good educator would, said actually uh, physics is going to help you. And he was trying to help convince them and persuade them. And then he made this bold declaration. You need to study physics because physics actually saves lives. And they said, well, what do you mean? They said, no, no, doctors knowing physics saves lives. And they, they began to kind of talk about that amongst themselves and argue with that. And eventually they kind of uh, kind of mustered up the courage to, to, to kind of question the professor about this. How in the world does physics save lives? And he says, well, I'll, I'll explain it to you this way. Physics keeps uh, lazy people from becoming doctors. <laughs> There's always value in something, you know, uh, like that, even if you don't necessarily uh, see it directly uh, connected. You know, it, it is funny when you talk about uh, what it takes to be a doctor or some other profession, Just like in any field, there are requirements for the job. So, for instance, you would think of a a doctor in particular. It's necessary that they go to med school and that they learn about medicine and the human body and diseases and all these various things. If if you were going to school or if you were aspiring to become a mechanic, you would need to study uh, how a car works, how a car operates, how it functions, everything from the the mechanical parts of the engine and, uh, well, the electrical parts uh, to the systems related. If you were an electrician or studying to become an electrician, you would need to know about circuit and currents and various different types of things so that you could perform the job well. And when, when someone in a, in a particular field is looking to hire uh, a, an employee, they'll often post the job. And what do you see posted with the job? Requirements for the position. Sometimes they say preferred. Sometimes they say required or essential. These are the skills that are necessary. 
Well, the, in, in many ways, there are some parallels when it comes to the body of Christ, and in particular, the role and the office of pastor. There are some requirements, not, not preferred, requirements, essential uh, uh, kind of attributes, if you will, of who can serve and function as a pastor. God lays them out in his word. We see them in 1 Timothy 3, and we see them in our passage in Titus 1 today. Now, while there are some parallels with the professional field and the, the church and the role of, of pastor, uh, there is some differences. You see, if, if a pastor was simply responsible to have some, some skills, some managerial abilities, some leadership capacity, then it would reduce the office of pastor to someone who's merely responsible to catch crowds or to please people or to build buildings. There is a distinct difference because the office of pastor is decidedly spiritual. It's decidedly spiritual. It's significant. But when you hear the word pastor in our culture today, there's been an erosion of pastoral credibility, if you will, because the the role of the pastor, the office of pastor, has been undermined within our culture uh, in terms of its authority. The authority of the pastor has been uh, kind of undermined by our our culture. Our our culture wants to kind of argue from a position of anti-authoritarian. In other words, they don't like authority in any form or context. That could be political, that could be civil, that could be instructional in a school, and it certainly is true also in the church where someone would want to maybe meddle in their lives. They don't like authority, and so the, 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 the authority of the pastor uh, has eroded within our culture. And a lot of that stems from the fact that our culture is unwilling to uh, acknowledge or affirm that there is absolute truth. Right? But there's also kind of the, uh, the, the reputation, if you will, uh, of the, uh, the pastor, maybe the admiration of the pastor that's been eroded in our culture. And this hasn't been our culture's responsibility, although they, they key on it. It's actually been a self-inflicted wound because so many times in the churches we've seen failures from pastors, whether that be morally, whether that be doctrinally, whether that be from a leadership perspective. And that's undermined the credibility of the pastor in uh, the eyes of our culture or community or even within our churches. And so at one point in in time, you would have heard someone say, hey, what do you do for a living? And, And somebody like myself would have been sitting on an airplane and would have said, oh, I'm a pastor. But now, many times today, if, if you ask somebody who's serving uh, in this pastoral office or role, uh, hey, what do you do for a living? They almost feel like they have to apologize even before it comes out of their mouth. Well, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a pastor, you know, because they know the, the connotation, the expectation that's going to have. In fact, uh, it, it's not just so much as recently, as, as many as 30 years ago, a man named David Wells wrote a book called No Place for Truth. And in that book, he identified uh, kind of the social status that ministers held and the decline of that. Here's what he noted. He said, in a study measuring social prestige on a scale from 1 to 100, ministers ranked 52, side by side with factory foremen and the operator of power stations. Now, this was 30 years ago. That's a full generation. It hasn't improved. In fact, it's only gotten worse. In a more recent study in uh, January of 2021, Lifeway released a study that was focused on America's trust of pastors and how it had reached an all-time low. It identified the top 15 uh, vocations, uh, if you will, in America and ranked them according to uh, the trustedness, uh, trusted nature of their professions. Number one on the list, and I would say this with kind of, uh, you know, joy because my wife is one, uh, but nurses. Nurses ranked at 89% trustworthy, right? Doctors, a little bit lower, but at 77%. 
and pharmacists at 71%. These were the top three. They were all in the medical profession. When you hear those percentages, 89, 77, that's a a strong level of, of trust. Pastors were way down the list coming in with um, a 39% approval rating as it related to being trustworthy or honest. 39%. That's how people view the role and office of pastor. Well, in the Bible, it's, it's, it's portrayed in an exactly opposite fashion. That the role of pastor and one who occupies that office must be and should be someone that you can completely trust without hesitation, without reservation. What are the qualifications of a pastor? Well, it's important for us to understand that as it relates to the church and our faith and just in general. But more particularly for us as a church family, it's really important for us to say, hey, who are we looking for? What are we praying for? What will the next senior pastor of Inglewood Baptist Church look like? Well, this passage answers that question. So if you found your place here in in Titus chapter 1, follow along with me as we read from God's Word. The Bible says this beginning in verse 5. Paul writing to Titus, God speaking to us. This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife, and his children are believers, not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination, For an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but instead hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers, and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. They must be silenced, since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain that which they ought not teach. One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. And this testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply, that they may be sound in the faith not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. To the pure, all things are pure. But to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. But both their minds and their consciences are defiled. They profess to know God, and they deny, but they deny Him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, and unfit for any good work. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, as we come to your word, God, I pray that you would give us wisdom and understanding. Father, I pray that you would strip away, Lord, all the connotations that exist in our own mind, that we might be open to hear what you have to say. Father, that our frame of reference, as it may be informed through our own personal history, Lord, through our past, through our exposure or experience, God would be set aside, and Lord, that the primary place of truth would be found in your word, not in our minds. Father, give us understanding by your spirit, through your word, and teach us as it relates to the the role of the shepherd, the pastor in your house. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Now, as we talk about the office of pastor, it's it's really important that we clear up uh, what that office actually means and, and the terms associated with it. Because after all, when you read this passage, I hope you noticed we didn't actually say the word pastor anywhere in here. What are we to make of that, and how do we understand that? 
Well, in the Bible, there are actually three different terms used for the office of pastor, and they're used interchangeably. If you were to look at what some of the passages where they're all three maybe used, you could look at in Acts chapter 20 as Paul is bidding farewell to the Ephesian elders. And he commends them as elders to exercise oversight uh, over the flock and to shepherd the flock among them. Similarly, uh, in 1 Peter 5, Peter does the same thing. As a fellow elder, he exhorts them as an overseer to shepherd the flock. And these terms, elder or overseer, two of the terms we see in the passage today, along with pastor, are used interchangeably to identify the New Testament office of church leadership. This is the office of pastor. Now, the three terms themselves speak to us, and I want you to see them. You'll see them maybe uh, listed on the screen. The term elder. Elder is, is a, uh, comes from a Greek word. I want to kind of confuse you here, but you'll, you'll see some and hear some connotations uh, as it relates to it. So the Greek word is actually presbyteros. Do you hear presbytery or presbyterian in there? That's how it's often spoken of in other circles to recognize the office of pastor or elder. The term elder, we see it here in verse 5 when Paul is writing to Titus and he says very specifically, for this purpose... In other words, this is the intention of why I left you on the island of Crete, that you would appoint elders, elders, this, this, this term, presbyteros, elders in every city, speaking here of the church leadership, that he might set in order what remains. The phrase he uses there in verse 5 is actually kind of what we would describe maybe as an orthodontic term, putting in order, setting or straightening out teeth for a kind of glamorous smile, right, that you would set these things in order by appointing elders in every city. But there's another word we see in this passage as well as the New Testament, and that's often translated as overseer, sometimes translated as bishop. This term would also derive from a, a, a Greek word that you would recognize or it would sound familiar. It's episkopos. So you would hear this word episcopalian, right, as it relates to a denomination that we would be familiar with. And this is the term it derives from. It speaks of an, a bishop or an overseer. And here it's used down in verse 7. For an overseer must be. And then he goes into the qualifications. In 1 Timothy 3, it also speaks of and uses this term uh, to describe the office itself, that it's established and identified, appointed by God. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, it's a noble task that he desires to do. So the word overseer or bishop uh, is a word that identifies this office. And then the third term is actually poemen, which uh, we translate as pastor or shepherd. Literally, it means shepherd. That's why we refer to the, the, the people of God as the flock of God. And again, you see this in 1 Peter 5 and in Acts 20, uh, as, as um, pastors are called to shepherd the flock among them. It's also identified in Ephesians 4, verse 11, when it says to the church, he then gave some as uh, apostles and as pastors and evangelists. And he goes on and lifts uh, some of the other uh, roles as well. So here we see these three terms used interchangeably within the New Testament. Pastor, bishop, overseer, elder, right? But how do we understand the functions of these? And I just briefly want to say this as we uh, get ready to walk through the text. Notice that the terms themselves speak to the role and function of what pastors are intended to do and to be. For instance, the, the term elder communicates something. For instance, uh, uh, the pastor is supposed to be one who has wisdom, can offer counsel, and provide guidance. In the same way, the term overseer that we discussed uh, uh, gives some understanding as to the function, is to provide oversight or direction or vision for the church family. 
And then you might also recognize from the, the term pastor or shepherd that there's some elements that we would understand that there's meant to be care and compassion and nourishment. Those who lead and feed the flock of God. So this is the term pastor. When we speak of pastor, this is the office in the New Testament. We say, okay, this is what God has established as those who would uh, lead and guide and feed the flock of his people. Well, what are the requirements of a pastor? How do we evaluate those things? What could we expect from a pastor? And how should we, in fact, pray for our pastors? Well, in this passage, what we see are really three attributes. If you just boil them down to three maybe summarizing attributes that, uh, that characterize the office of pastor. The first one we see is this. The pastors must display the fundamentals. Pastors must display the fundamentals. There are some basic fundamental attributes and traits that are essential for someone to qualify as a pastor. You see, the role of a pastor is a high calling. It, it's something that God has established and said there is some spiritual weight and responsibility with this. In fact, that's why it says in 1 Timothy 3.1, if anyone aspires to the office of overseer, there's, a, there's an elevated sense of it. Not in the way that it kind of puts them on a pedestal, but one that honors the role in the office. But it's not just a high calling, it's a holy calling. What we're going to see is the qualifications here speak to a lot uh, to the character of someone who occupies the office and the essential uh, uh, elements or attributes that they must demonstrate within their personhood. So it's a high calling. It's a holy calling. And it's a humble calling. It's one that can't be paraded. One that someone doesn't occupy the office with a puffed out chest as though they're better than other people or they, they kind of are specific or chosen, somehow elite. No, it's one that humbles because you recognize as a pastor that you're unworthy of what God, the task that God has entrusted to you. And it's humble in the sense of you bear the spiritual responsibility and weight of people that are in your hands and you bear that in your heart. So this, this term pastor speaks of the, there's some fundamental attributes, there's some included as the qualifications, and he begins to describe them in verse 6. When you speak of the fundamentals, the essential attributes, here are the non-negotiables. Again, in the job posting, right, these are required. These are not optional or preferred. These are required. First thing pastors must display kind of as the fundamentals is they must exhibit domestic dignity. Domestic dignity. Notice there with me in verse 6, if anyone is above reproach. Now, this is an umbrella term. We'll actually see it used twice in this passage. It speaks of one who, who against whom accusations do not stick, right? One who above reproach, the term literally could be translated blameless, Right? doesn't mean perfect. Okay? We can't hold pastors to a, an unrealistic standard. They're not Jesus. Okay? But it does mean blameless, meaning that when there is a, um, a mistake, when there is a, a flaw, when there is a, kind of a violation of one of these, that it's more the exception than the rule as it speaks to their character. And that when there is those things, that they're willing to own it, admit to it, confess it, repent of it, and be restored in, in those uh, areas where God is continuing to refine them. Right? Above reproach. And he starts with the most important element of any uh, person's life, but in particular of the pastor's life, the home. Domestic dignity. This speaks of the, the ability of a pastor to manage his own household well. That's how uh, Paul phrased it in 1 Timothy 3. If he can't manage his own household well, how can he be expected to manage the household of God? Well, look how he describes this domestic dignity. He says, if anyone's above reproach, the husband of one wife. That phrase literally means a one-woman man. 
Now, when you think of that phrase, uh, this does not necessarily exclude someone who's not married. In other words, it's not speaking to uh, uh, someone who's single. It doesn't also exclude someone who maybe uh, is a widower, right? Uh, it's not meant to exclude that. In fact, most specifically, it's identifying that you know, the, the pastor can't be a polygamist. He can't have multiple wives and certainly would be disqualified as an adulterer. Different people uh, dispute and have different agreements on whether or not this means that someone can or can't be divorced. But ultimately, the phrase speaks to the integrity and character of the heart of a pastor, that he is a one-woman man. One who is a pastor must be devoted to, committed to, and faithful to the woman who is his wife. He's a one-woman man. But he's not just someone who is a one-woman man, the husband of one wife. Look at what else he says. His children are believers. Now, the pastor can't be responsible for the salvation of his children. But he has the responsibility to give them every opportunity to trust the Lord by how he raises them and nurtures them, uh, according to Ephesians 6.4, in the instruction of the Lord, giving them the opportunity and leading them to a point where Christ is put before them as an opportunity for the, the, their Lord and Savior to make that choice on their own. His uh, children also uh, are not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. Let me just say this very clearly. When it comes to a pastor's children, don't place unrealistic expectations on them. They're not better than or different than any other children. In the sense of children are children. They're learning. They're, they're growing. They're making mistakes. They're acting childish. That's what children do. But as it speaks here to, to insubordination or debauchery, that the pastor himself is not allowing those things to go unchecked. It's the pastor's responsibility. And too many times uh, children of, of, of pastors or those in the ministry have been held to an unrealistic standard. And sadly, it's kind of put them in a, a place where it's impossible for them to succeed and to grow and to mature to where they become almost resentful towards the church because of the expectations that church members can have on the children of the pastor. Listen, the pastor is responsible to manage his house well. And as long as those children especially are living with under, uh, under his roof or under his watch care, that they would be, in fact, not guilty of debauchery or insubordination. A pastor must exhibit domestic dignity. The pastor must also exhibit uh, personal integrity. Personal integrity. He now goes into uh, another list of qualifications, if you will. In fact, he identifies 11 of them. We're going to move them through them quickly, but I want you to see, starting in the next verse, he identifies 11 attributes or characteristics of the pastor. The first five actually are negative, what the pastor should not be. The last six are actually positive, what the pastor should be or what he should embody. And it all speaks to his personal integrity, who he is and how his character is recognized or revealed. So then he says again in verse 7, for an overseer, there's the term speaking again of the pastor, as God's steward must be above reproach. Again, the blanket umbrella term that characterizes pastors and their uh, responsibility before God. He then says he must not be arrogant. This speaks to pride, right? Hubris, as though he, he would look at himself and think more highly of himself than he ought to, which is a clear violation of Romans 12. Right, that he would not be arrogant, puffed up with conceit. That he would not be quick-tempered. This term simply means that he has a, a long fuse. Right? And it's not just that he has a long fuse. In other words, that he, he's patient and tempered. But when the temperature rises, right, that eventually the pot might boil over, but that it doesn't explode like a stick of dynamite. Right? That he's not quick-tempered. He also says that he's not a drunkard. 
Now, this speaks to someone who's uh, literally not given to excess as it relates to alcohol in this particular example, but I think it would extend beyond that. Not given to uh, excess, right? But in this day and age, and not just ours, but in the context of this, I think it's wise and important that we must recognize the reputation that a pastor must maintain. In fact, in 1 Timothy 3.7, it says that the pastor must maintain a reputation with outsiders. And the connotation that alcohol has in our world, in our culture, is very um, specific and comes with a lot of different kind of um, considerations to where if you asked me that it would be wise, at the very least, that pastors would not exercise what some might portray as Christian liberty, but that they would make the personal decision to abstain entirely, certainly not to stumble into an accusation of this kind, but also to avoid any other insinuation. So not a drunkard, that he's not violent. In other words, he's not uh, contentious. He's not looking for a fight, but it doesn't just speak to physical violence here. It's one who is not guilty of abuse, whether that be physical abuse, emotional abuse, or spiritual abuse, that he's not violent, that he's not greedy for gain. This last one here speaks to, to, to motive, that the, the pastor's motive isn't doing it for personal benefit. In fact, the pastor ought to be opposite. Instead of being greedy for gain, he ought to be generous and gracious. But those who are looking out for their self-gain are those that are disqualifying for themselves as pastors. Now, as churches, we have to recognize that God gives the, the responsibility to the church to provide for pastors. You see it in 1 Timothy 5. You see it elsewhere as Paul's writing to the Corinthians that, in fact, pastors can earn their living from the gospel. Right? But it means that the, it doesn't mean that pastors should seek that or pursue that as the number one goal. We should provide for our pastors but not in a way that, that gives them an appeals uh, to their, their sense of entitlement or in terms of uh, their extravagance, right? So now it goes into verse 8 and speaks of the six positive. Instead, what should a pastor look like? Well, he uses the term hospitable here. Hospitable literally means a lover of strangers. In other words, a pastor shouldn't be one who plays favorites. A pastor shouldn't discriminate on any basis. A pastor should be hospitable, a lover uh, of um, all people and those who welcome, uh, those who he welcomes uh, though anybody into not just his home but into the house of God. He doesn't play favorites, uh, one who entertains and welcomes strangers. Next he says that he should be a lover of good, that which is honorable. The things that he's passionate about should be that which are, are noble and upright. Those things that God cares about and emphasizes, that he would love the things that are good and wholesome. It speaks of uh, then, too, that he must be self-controlled, that he's not given over to emotion, that he's not, um, you know, operating under in a, in a reactive way. In fact, you might characterize it as, as a pastor as one who knows the difference between uh, reacting and responding. And a pastor should respond rather than react. He's self-controlled, upright that he lives a, a, a moral life, one that reflects uh, that which he affirms and ascribes to, not only in Scripture on Sunday as he preaches, but that which he models and lives throughout the week. His, his life is upright, righteous as it's sometimes translated, reflecting the very character of God. Holy, holy, this term means to be separated from the world, that there's a distinct uh, willingness for a pastor to separate uh, himself from worldliness in a way that, that is willing to, to maybe sacrifice or give up that which he has the right to do in order to not compromise uh, his platform for the gospel. I remember uh, counseling a young pastor when we lived in Florida um, <clears throat> who was kind of, uh, quite honestly, trying to push the envelope 
uh, with some, some elements. They wouldn't have been considered sinful in any way, but they weren't necessarily appropriate for his ministry role. And I asked him, are you really willing to give up and sacrifice your entire ministry because you want to fight for your right to wear a certain thing? How absurd. When, when we should look at it and we should say, listen, I'm willing to, to distinguish myself from the world, the things I involve myself with, or even my right to do what I want to do for the sake of God's people. Upright, holy, and lastly, they're disciplined. Disciplined. Not only according to 1 Timothy 4, 7, disciplining yourself for the purpose of godliness, but disciplined in the fact that he maintains his, his um, responsibilities, that he's exercising oversight well, that he's not compromising those, and he's not persuaded not only by his emotions, but even by other people. He's disciplined in these ways. So a pastor must exhibit domestic dignity, and he must be a person of personal integrity. But there's another element that's a fundamental that a pastor uh, is essential for a pastor. Pastors must also exhibit spiritual maturity. Spiritual maturity. All of these speak to the character, but what does this also translate to by way of his own spiritual walk and growth? Well, look at the next verse. He must, and again, you see the emphasis on a requirement. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word. This speaks to, to his understanding of the scriptures and his life that corresponds with the scriptures. He holds it firm and he lives it out. In fact, in 1 Timothy 3, the parallel passage uh, that we uh, continue to refer to, Paul actually tells Timothy uh, that a pastor can't be a new convert. Otherwise, he will fall in, uh, into the, the snare of the devil and become conceited. In fact, he must uh, exercise and demonstrate a spiritual maturity that he's grounded. He's walked through seasons of life, you know, not only in his personal domestic life and his experience as a, as a person, as a man, but also that he's walked through seasons of ministry. And he understands the ebbs and flows of those things. And as he learns and as he grows, that there's spiritual maturity that he exhibits. Friends, a, a pastor must display the fundamentals. And as it relates to just kind of your life, my life, the life of this church, can I just say what this means for us, what this translates to? Listen, for a pastor, I'm just speaking as the responsibility of our hearts. What we have to focus on more than anything is our character. I think of the famous words of the Scottish preacher Robert Murray McShane. This is how he said it. He said, my people's greatest need is my personal holiness. Friends, that ought to be the disposition of a pastor. One who says, what you need most is for me to be godly. He also uh, was quoted as saying uh, this, speaking, in fact, charging someone um, uh, who was being ordained to the ministry. He said, it's not great talents God blesses so much as great likeness to Jesus. Friends, when we pray for and look for a pastor, what we're looking for is someone who displays the fundamentals of domestic dignity, personal integrity, and spiritual maturity. There's a second uh, truth in this passage. Not only must pastors display the fundamentals, pastors must disciple the flock. You see, one speaks to who a pastor is. Now we get into what a pastor does. Pastors must disciple the flock. Notice there in verse 7, as he describes it, he says, For an overseer as God's steward. It's very important that we recognize what pastors really are. You see, pastors aren't the ultimate authority. In the absence of a senior pastor, guess what? We still have Christ, who the Bible says is the head of the church. Both Ephesians 5 and Colossians 1 identify him as such. He is the head of the church, which means the church belongs to him. 
I think of the exhortation in 1 Peter 5, again, where he's talking to pastors and to shepherds. And who does he relate them to? And how does he describe their responsibilities as they exercise oversight, as they do it not for sordid gain, as they're examples to the flock? He says, you do this so that when the chief shepherd appears. In other words, pastors, no matter what their title is here in a local church context, they are not the ultimate chief shepherd. Jesus is. And as he speaks of it here, he says an overseer is one who's exercising oversight, but is ultimately God's steward, managing that which has been entrusted to him, but belongs to God. So what are pastors stewards of? Well, pastor must be a faithful steward, first and foremost, of God's church. Must be a faithful steward of God's church as good stewards. You know, the Bible speaks of this and describes uh, in Hebrews 13, 17, the leadership responsibility. There it's encouraging and challenging uh, the members to obey your leaders and submit to them as those who are uh, given charge over you, right? Who must bear a, an account before God. Pastors have to give an account before God for how they manage his people. Pastors are responsible as stewards of God's church. And they do so as they, how they lead and as their leadership reflects the loving servant leadership of the chief shepherd, Jesus himself, which means we can't take liberties with God's church. We can't uh, do it the way we want to. We can't treat people like they belong to us because ultimately they don't. They belong to God. We have to be good stewards of God's church. As a good steward, we must exercise oversight. But it's not just that we must be faithful stewards of God's church. We must, in fact, be faithful stewards of God's truth, of God's truth. Look there in verse 9 again. He says, the pastor holds firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine. The pastor is responsible to teach and to preach and to feed the flock by giving instruction in sound doctrine. That term is repeated throughout the book of Titus and it literally just means healthy teaching. That's which provides spiritual nourishment. They can be healthy teachers and also to rebuke those who contradict it. In other words, pastors uh, have to steward God's truth, the Bible, the scriptures well. Just like Paul told Timothy in 2 Timothy 2, right? That they would study to show himself approved before God. A workman who doesn't need to be ashamed, but one who rightly handles the word of truth. Those who teach God's word, according to James 3.1, are held to a higher standard. And that what they will be evaluated on is how accurate and faithful they are to the scriptures. Listen, someone who expounds and exposits the Word of God faithfully from the pulpit, week in, week out, in every context or capacity that that person, that pastor, and that church allows for them and operates uh, within, the pastor must do that. Teaching the Word of God, the truth of God, because of what we believe about the Word of God, that it is, in fact, God's truth. So we are stewards of God's church and stewards of God's truth. Frank, can I tell you something today as we're talking about those who are going to disciple the flock, we're in a crisis. And I don't mean our church. I mean the church at large in particular. We're, we're facing a famine of God-called leaders, young men who God is raising up to be pastors. As Pastor Jordan was speaking earlier, as you're saying, we all have the responsibility, according to Matthew 9, to pray to the Lord of the harvest, to send out laborers into the harvest. We have to get back to calling out the called. Helping people realize that God is, in fact, calling men to, to give their lives to the, the role and the office of pastor. 
I've talked to pastors even in our area, the greater Raleigh area, who have said, listen, as I've begun to kind of put this out before my people, I have people who are saying, God's calling me to a second career. I've had a career. I've served in this capacity, but God's calling me to, to walk away from this, to devote myself to becoming a pastor. Young people being raised up. I'm so thankful for the testimony of Inglewood and the, the people that have been raised up within this body. that would be trained and then sent out to pastor and lead other churches. We have to, to, to call out the call and invite people to consider, is God calling you to vocational pastoral ministry? And those who recognize that they have been, have been given a sacred trust. That we would steward well the treasure that has been entrusted to us. That we would be good stewards of God's church and good stewards of God's truth. Pastors must display the fundamentals and pastors must, in fact, disciple the flock. Lastly, very quickly, pastors must also defend the faith. Pastors must defend the faith. As he's describing it here, he says at the end of verse 9 that pastors must, in fact, be able to refute those who contradict sound teaching. What he begins to describe in the final uh, few verses here as we read through them uh, doesn't just identify those who are false teachers who uh, maybe are outside the church. But I think also on the heels of the qualifications of those who occupy the pastoral office, Paul is saying you have to beware of, of what he told the Ephesian elders in Acts 20, of those who would rise up among you to be wolves in sheep's clothing, those who would in fact be false teachers. So how do we spot false teachers? outside or within the church to guard ourselves as pastors who are responsible to defend the faith. It's interesting he uses words here, like in verse 9, to those that he might be able to refute or rebuke. In verse 7, it says that they are to be silenced. And in verse 13, it elevates it and says that you should rebuke them sharply. Now, all that's in accordance with the characteristics and attributes that he said earlier. Done in love, but done with conviction. So how do we spot and identify what false teaching looks like? Very quickly, I'll just mention a few of these things as we walk through it. In verse 10, always know that false teaching is masked by deceptive content. It's masked by deceptive content. He says, for there are many who are insubordinate. And there is describing a rebellious spirit in nature, not just towards others, but towards God. Insubordinate towards others and towards God. But notice how he describes their teaching. Empty talkers and deceivers. False teaching is always masked by deceptive content. Here's how you recognize false teaching. It's going to do one of or all three of these things. Minimize sin, maximize self, or misrepresent the Savior. It's going to minimize sin, maximize self, or misrepresent the Savior. That's empty talking, and that's deceivers. Those who would, in some ways, uh, kind of just brush off, wink, wink, uh, kind of lower the bar as the, God's holy standard and minimize sin. Those who are going to maximize self, those who are going to make it all about themselves, health, wealth, prosperity, gospel, right? And those who are going to ultimately undermine the nature and reality of who Jesus is, misrepresenting our Savior. Is it in some heresy way, like that he's not the Son of God, that he's not eternal, right? Or even in some more mild but just as egregious way. That uh, simply easy believism or something like that would creep into the church and uh, mar the church uh, through empty deceit, deceptive content. False teaching is masked by, it's hidden by deceptive content. Let me tell you another characteristic to look for. He mentions there in verse 11, false teaching is marked by divisive influence. Listen, God's truth unifies. Satan's lies divide. And that's how he describes it here in the next verse, verse 11. Right? They must be silenced since they are upsetting whole families. 
and teaching that which is for shameful gain. At the end of verse 10, he described those who are of the circumcision party. That's those who we're adding to. It's Jesus plus something. The easy believism I mentioned would be Jesus minus something, right? Here what he's describing is, listen, it's all about stirring up strife. It's all about stirring up strife. They, they, they must be silenced because they're upsetting whole families. They're, they're integrating themselves within to the church and, and isolating people. To, to upset families would mean to, they're kind of isolating them. Hey, let us talk to you about this. And almost in secret, persuading people to believe one thing and misleading them and causing strife and division within the body. That's always a sign of false teaching. False teaching is not only masked by deceptive content and marked by divisive influence. He also says in verse 11 that false teaching is motivated by dishonest gain. It's motivated by dishonest gain. There's always a selfish motive involved. It's not always apparent. It's not always easy to see, but it's always there. He says in verse 11 that they are teaching for shameful gain, that which they ought not teach. In other words, they know better. They know better. You think, well, are they really misleading people? Oh, yeah, because it's all for selfish gain. Opposite of what the characteristics and qualifications of a pastor said here in Titus 1, but also in 1 Peter 5, where it says that the pastor, the shepherd, does not serve according to or for sordid gain. False teaching is also manifested in disgraceful behavior. It's manifested in disgraceful behavior. The next few verses, he describes kind of the culture around them, but also that which uh, became characteristic of those who were uh, purporting this false teaching. He says, one of the Cretans, uh, this is a prophet named Epimenides, uh, who actually was saying of the, 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 the Cretans themselves, their culture, and celebrating their sinfulness, that Cretans are always liars and evil beasts and lazy gluttons. This wasn't an accusation. This was in celebration, celebrating their sinfulness, much like our culture does today. In verse 12, uh, 13, excuse me, Paul affirms this testimony is true. But what he's saying is that the false teachers had begun to associate themselves and integrate themselves and compromise the truth to look like the Cretans or to endorse their behavior. Hello? Have we not seen that most recently in our churches? Right? Where we're seeing that, that there's compromise on, on human sexuality and some of these standards that the Bible is clear on. And in compromising that, they become what the culture is celebrating. And he says, this testimony is true, but therefore we must be rebuked them sharply. Right? That they may be sound in the faith. Can we just put it this way? A faulty foundation will always result in a moral collapse. And if you believe something that's wrong, that belief will eventually translate into behavior that compromises and is contradictory to the Word of God. A, a faulty doctrinal foundation will always lead to a moral collapse. And as he's describing it here, he says, this is truth. But notice where he says that we should challenge them, that they may be sound in the faith. We don't challenge them at the behavioral level. We challenge them at the belief level, what's in their heart, right? Because then he says in verse 14, so they will not devote themselves to Jewish myths and to the commands of people who turn away from the truth. But instead, verse 15, to the pure, all things are pure. In other words, when their heart is right, when their doctrine is right, when their faith is right, their lives will be right. And you will be able to recognize it. Jesus put it in the simple agricultural terms, by their fruit you shall know them. To the pure all things are pure, but to the defiled and unbelieving nothing is pure. Their minds, their consciences are defiled. Here he now gives the final attribute of false teaching and those who uh, kind of practice it or teach it. False teaching is manufactured from a depraved heart. It comes from within. It's those who are sick at their very core. 
they have these defiled consciences and minds. But then he says there in verse 16, they profess to know God. They have an outward testimony, but ultimately they deny him by their works. There's an inconsistency to their life. Therefore, he says, they are detestable, disobedient, and unfit for every good work. They're detestable means they're an abomination to God. Those who bear the responsibility to teach and lead God's church or who elevate themselves to that uh, level and yet do so in an ungodly fashion, teaching that which is false and doesn't align with Scripture is an abomination to God, he says. They're not just detestable, they're disobedient. It means that they're in opposition to God. They're not working for him, they're working against him. And then lastly, it says that they're unfit for any good work. They're useless to God. They're, they're not good for anything. You see, pastors must be able to defend the flock against these teachers. And they themselves must stand apart as that which doesn't correspond and distinguishes themselves. So this is who a pastor is and what he does. Pastors must display the fundamentals of domestic dignity and spiritual maturity and personal integrity. Pastors must disciple the flock as a good steward of God's church and truth. And they must defend the faith against those who would contradict it, stand opposed to it as he moves the, 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 the ball, spiritual ball, if you will, the gospel forward down the field. We have that responsibility. In Jude 3, it says that we would contend for the faith once for all delivered to the saints. Okay, well, that's who a pastor is and what he does. How does God want you to respond to that? I mean, this is God's word and it, it speaks to those things, but how are you and I supposed to respond? What does God want from us this morning? I want to give you three really practical points of application, just questions that we're actually going to use as prompts for response this morning. How does God want you to respond? First thing I think God wants us to do is that we should seek godly leadership. We should seek godly leadership. Very particular, specific to us is the Inglewood family. If you want to know what the next pastor of Inglewood Baptist Church looks like, look right there. This is the profile. God is calling us to focus, rather than on giftedness, on godliness. Rather than on superficial factors, on significant spiritual factors. That we would pray for our committee, our search committee, and say, God, would you give them eyes to see the one that you've identified and are raising up for this office that lives up to these qualifications, that embodies these characteristics, that can practice these things, that we wouldn't put all the responsibility on them as though none of the responsibility depends on us, that we would be praying for God's man, that we would seek godly leadership. So maybe during our time of response in just a few moments, maybe you want to use this platform as an altar to just come forward and just say, God, give us eyes to see, burden our hearts to see the one that you've raised up to become the next senior pastor of this church, that he would embody these characteristics and that we would strip away, we have to be honest with ourselves, that we would strip away any of, of our personal preferences to elevate what God's standards are above our own. That means things that are uh, related to age or family demographics or other kind of personality traits. We set those aside and elevate God's standards, that we would seek godly leadership. Second way God wants us to respond, that we should, in fact, support godly leadership, that we would support godly leadership. Listen, God has blessed the Inglewood family with a number of godly leaders. It's interesting when you see the term here in the scriptures that Titus would appoint elders, that it's plural. 
This is most easily lived out in a larger church setting. But you have those who are not simply, you know, managers. You have pastors. I'm, I'm so thankful for the pastors that God has called here. Pastor Jordan and Pastor Gene, Pastor Charles, and Pastor Dylan and Pastor Schuyler and others say, God has given us leaders that during this season, we're not left empty-handed without leadership. So what can you do during this season to offer them your support? How can you pray for them? How can you encourage them? How can you come alongside them as they're carrying a great deal of weight that extends beyond the original scope of their responsibilities? You have the responsibility during this season in particular to support godly leadership. Encourage them, lift them up, pray for them, serve them. Some people, quite honestly, in the church feel it's their spiritual gift and responsibility to just be a, a burr under the saddle of pastors. Now, I don't know anybody in this church like that, but I have to confess, I don't know everybody in this church. And so I'm just telling you that during this season, this should be a season where you're encouraging the godly leaders that God has placed here. Seek godly leadership and support godly leadership. And lastly, we should submit to God's leadership. Let me just get personal with you. Submitting to God's leadership. When you read a passage like this that designates that which is required for the pastoral office, it's easy to kind of say, oh, that's for the spiritually elite. That's not for everyone. That's not true. These are the qualifications of a pastor, but they're the qualities that God desires in every person. They're the characteristics that God intends for you. So when you look at this, while, while God would hold everyone in this office as responsible, they have to be and measure up to this standard. It doesn't mean that God doesn't have that same desire for your life. There are requirements for pastors, but they are the responsibilities for every believer. It is, in fact, for everyone, not just for the elite. These are the spiritual qualities God wants you to have. So as you look through this passage, are there elements in your own life where you say, you know what, God, I... I'm not hospitable or a lover of strangers. God, I'm given over to excess. God, I, whatever the qualifications and characteristics, God, I'm meant to hold fast to your word. I've, I've been given and trusted with the responsibility to be a good steward of your truth and a good steward of your church. How can I best do that, even from my role? So there is personal application for you as it relates to this passage. How does God want you to respond? Let's pray.